Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and I'm excited to have Elizabeth Macbridge, uh, who's an award-winning business journalist whose work has been published in Forbes Magazine, Newsweek, HBI, and many others. Uh, Elizabeth often writes about investing, entrepreneurship, and industrial business. Uh, she has a journalism degree from the University of Maryland, where she was an editor-in-chief of the Diamondback and an MFA in nonfiction uh, from George Mason University. Uh, I have another great guest, Seth Levin, who is a founder of Foundry Group, which is a Boulder-based early stage venture capital firm specializing in technology and internet related investments. Uh, he's also the founder of Page One Person and, and both Elizabeth and Seth are co-authors of the a new book, The New Builders Face-to-Face for the True Future of Business. Uh, welcome to the show, Seth and Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. Thank you, Rohit. Awesome. So, uh, so you know, uh, you, you, you've been... Uh, you know, into journalism and it's like you've been into, into, into the VC world. What made you write the book? Uh, what got you interested to, you know, write this book right now? Uh, well, um, so as you said, I'm, I'm a, I've been a journalist for a long time um, and met Seth through that work. Um, he was investing in a company in a fund in Palestine. Um, and I was doing some work there for the United Nations. And so we met and stayed in touch because we have a, a shared passion, I think, for the idea that um, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship can really be a tool for personal agency and for equitable economic development. Um, so we stayed in touch. And then a few years ago, I dropped into Boulder. Um, we chatted and came up uh, with the idea to do this book. Interesting. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the book is about the new builders, uh, and uh, do, you, do you really think that entrepreneurship is dying uh, these days? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of funding which has happened across across uh, the world. And I think 2020 had been an inflection point where, uh, you know, software had that uptake and a lot of new stage, new uh, early stage entrepreneurs who have come up uh, in spite of uh, the COVID uh, era. But do you think entrepreneurship is dying? Right yeah, it's not even really a think it's not a really th- a think question, right? I mean, the data, d- the data show that it's absolutely dying. I think that what's inherent in your question is one of the things that we talk about a lot in the book, which is that our perception of entrepreneurship has been overtaken by a very narrow slice of entrepreneurship, which is tech- technology entrepreneurship, which is thriving. Um, right. and, but it's thriving only in some very specific places. And, and you know, Elizabeth and I argue in the book that that's, that's really detrimental to the overall uh, economic dynamism of the entrepreneurial, overall entrepreneurial economy. Only about one percent of businesses take money from venture capital, um, right. and so and they're important businesses, and it's a you know it's a lot of money, right? So it you know these are platform businesses that in many cases help enable other businesses, but 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 most actual new businesses um, are users of technology, but not producers of technology, right? They're restaurants, they're uh, you know corner stores, they're uh, fitness businesses, um, health and beauty, and, and that's those are the businesses that people are starting. Um, and incidentally, those are also the businesses that that were most likely to be harmed by the COVID economic crisis. And so, you know, there's there's a real problem that's that's been unseen. Really, in the United States and globally, but but uh, the book focuses more on the U.S. economy, um, which is that uh, entrepreneurship 
absolutely is dying and and we don't notice it because um, what we've decided is entrepreneurial is is distinctly you know it's this one little section of of entrepreneurship and it's it's distinctly um you know sort of the antithesis of how we used to describe entrepreneurship which was much more broad-based and, and do you think it's because of the 2008 recession uh, era is is because the entrepreneurship is dying slowly in, in us or, or do you think it's been you know a lot of sub sub factors especially you know uh, or what what has happened uh, in the last 10 years especially with, with covid and technology being such a uh, it has been a force with which uh, you know a lot of funding has happened there uh, why why do you think you know in last 10 to 20 years uh, entrepreneurship would be done So it's actually a longer trend. Um, entrepreneurship in the United States has been declining for, for four decades. Um, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of uh, different theories about why that is. Um, one um, aspect of it, uh, you know, the Global Entrepreneurship Monitor um, puts out the theory that in the developed world, in the U.S. and Europe, people just have many more choices, right? They don't have to go into business. And so why do it when you can get a much easier and safer corporate job? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I think that there's a lot of kind of assumptions in that, which aren't necessarily true. Corporate jobs aren't nearly as good or yeah. pleasant or secure as they once were, um, but it does click with part of the other thing that we found when we were researching the book, which is that the people who are most entrepreneurial today are women and people of color in the United States who have a less comfortable perch in the corporate world. Um, there are other reasons that we believe entrepreneurship is declining. Um, there's been a kind of mind shift mind uh, set shift um, in the United States so that people are, are more aver- averse to risk. Young people aren't starting businesses as much as they used to. That's going on at the same time. Um, and then also Seth and I believe, and we also believe this is the fastest way to restore entrepreneurship. But if you really look at the finance system for small business, it is broken. Um, there's been a major consolidation in the banking sector that combined with the rise of the new builders um, means that startups today, companies outside that tiny narrow slice in the tech world, the rest of the world of entrepreneurship doesn't get nearly the amount of funding or mentorship or networking support that it needs. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you made some uh, very interesting points, especially uh, with women and people of color, you know, uh, starting out more businesses. Uh, do, do you also think they're the fastest, you know, uh, growing group of entrepreneurs around there? Yeah, again, the day, I mean, the data are clear on this, right? I mean, we, and this is surprising to a lot of people. I mean, the, the truth is that um, the fastest growing groups of, of uh, new entrepreneurs are uh, women and people of color. Um, and in fact, uh, actually, Elizabeth just wrote this in her in her Forbes column uh, yesterday. Uh, really good article that that just that parsed through a bunch of data uh, around who's been starting businesses and, and uh, comes to the conclusion that actually white men are the minority now of business owners, uh, which is also something that. Um, Uh, you know, I think people find very surprising. And in fact, when Elizabeth and I initially did the research on the book, um, and we took our findings to friends and just sort of said, hey, this is 
this is what we're finding. What do you think? And most of them just didn't believe us. Um, and we had to actually show them the, you know, the source data and say, no, 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 this is actually what's happening. And, they, you know, to their credit, there are a few, um, few reporters for the New York Times and elsewhere that, you know, have, have picked up on these trends over time. Um, but it just doesn't get written about because it's not as sexy to talk about, you know, entrepreneurship is dying as it is to talk about, you know, the next Silicon Valley unicorn and, you know, so-and-so became a billionaire because, you know, because of their technology business. And, and that, I mean, that's great, right? Good for them. And, and hopefully they'll do some good with that money and, you know, maybe start some other businesses. But, um, but the truth is um, our economy needs a broad set of companies to be successful. Um, and, you know, we've, we've stopped, stopped producing uh, successful companies at the rate that we used to. Right. Uh, but but uh, you know when it comes to funding for uh, for early stage entrepreneurs, uh, women entrepreneurs are not getting that kind of funding. Uh, but but do you, do you believe in your research? Uh, women, uh, especially women led CEOs, you know they, they make up not more than nine, nine to ten percent of the entire uh, funding spend, especially when it comes to technology companies. Uh, but, but do you think that that research is correct? Or do you think, you know, there's, there, there has been an uptake of women entrepreneurs getting funded, uh, especially when it comes to tech companies? Uh, you know, it's like, it, it, <laughs> it all boils down to this, this fundamental misperception that people have that the entire universe of entrepreneurship is tech entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, and really, you've got to find another lens to look at this problem. And in the U.S. especially, and I think globally, there's a version of this that's true. In the U.S., the lens you have to look at it through is race. That's our original sin. And it's always it's just always about race. And then globally, I think the lens you have to look at it through is women, right? And that also holds true in the U.S. Mailman is a email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. Um, and so within the tech space, there are there is a tiny number of women, especially women of color, who get funded by the venture capital system. So that is a problem. That number is growing. There's been a ton of attention paid to that, right? Like Melinda Gates is on the forefront of, um, you know, trying to make sure that women get their fair share of venture money. Um, and that's an issue. That's a, that's a problem. And um, but the bigger and broader problem is that women um, who want to start businesses of all kinds don't get the funding they need. And people of color don't get the funding they need. So to focus only on the tech economy and the trends within that is somewhat harmful. It is harmful to the conversation we need to have about how to create a just and better functioning economy in the US. And I think there are versions of this that play out around the world. And in fact, I'll, I'll just like, Seth and I have already talked about doing an international version of the new builders, because I think so many of these trends play out in different ways. Okay, interesting. And uh, especially, you know, when it comes to entrepreneurship, uh, you, you rightly pointed out that, you know, it's been there in the major cities, but, but you know, do you think after 2020, 
uh, after what has happened uh, from COVID, do you think the next wave of entrepreneurship will come from smaller cities or in you know, uh, mid-sized cities as well? Well, entrepreneurship is becoming increasingly concentrated, right? I mean, uh, and this is this is this was not true 30 or 40 years ago. It is true now that the net, again, thinking about entrepreneurship uh, broadly, net new business starts are highly concentrated in five cities. Um, and that's a problem, right? And uh, this, we're talking about the US here. Um, I hope it'll become a bit more broad-based, but I, I think it's not going to become more broad-based unless we actually help it become more broad-based. And I'm, and, and I'm not talking about you know tech workers in San Francisco now being able to work from Boise, Idaho. That's great too. And it's fantastic for Boise's uh, you know, economy, but, but I'm talking about sort of net new businesses starting. So again, back to the corner shops and the, um, you know, the delis and the restaurants and, and the people that cut your hair, like th- those are the, that, those are the, the workhorses, if you will, camels, as we call them of the entrepreneurial economy and, you know, finding ways to make that their success more broad-based rather than highly specialized, um, or highly concentrated in these five cities that, that, you know, that's kind of the call to action, the call to arms of the book. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to um, add to that uh, and say um, that the, you know, um, that I think it's really uh, too soon to talk about the effect of COVID on the entrepreneurial economy. It's like we're in this moment in time when everybody is making all these predictions. And I've long since learned as a journalist, right, that if you're making predictions at this phase, uh, you're just almost always wrong. So, um, you know, I do and have witnessed that um, there's kind of a mindset shift that's coming about because of COVID. But I think, and that that is more entrepreneurial. In fact, there's just new research on the fact that young people are now having a different motivation when they start their businesses, that it's less about, I want to be my own boss, which was what was true for my generation, and more about, I want to make an impact on the world. Mm. Um, And that, like, if you think about it, is tremendous. Um, So to find ways to support that in the communities where people understand the problems of their communities could be an immensely powerful thing. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and do you think it's mostly uh, the Gen Zs and the millennials who are starting these businesses? Because I think they 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 feel that they need to, you know, give back more to the society and they want to make an impact. Or, or, or are you seeing some different trends over there? Well, I mean, I think that um, one of the dangerous things that's going on is that entrepreneurship is somewhat concentrated in terms of uh, in the high income brackets, right? The high wealth brackets. Um, and we cite some studies in the book that describe this, and it's it, it it shouldn't be the purview of the wealthy. I mean, what's 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 ironic is in the book we describe uh, a number of people, including one uh, entrepreneur who's probably the, the one we feature the most, um, who started their business on on essentially nothing, right? This woman who started a business on thirty seven dollars worth of food stamps. Incredible story, incredibly compelling. But the truth is that people who are starting businesses are more likely to be wealthy because they have the backstop for it. And one of the things we talk about in the book 
book is, is the book is not particularly political, but we do talk about the need for a social backstop, the, the degrading of the social safety net in the states, um, and this attachment we have between or uh, healthcare and and workplace. Um, is, these are impediments to entrepreneurial activity, right? And and in some respects, the most capitalist thing we could do as a country um, would be to adopt, you know, a healthcare coverage for all and and to strengthen the so- social safety net a little bit because of the consequences of failure, especially at the lower income levels, the lower wealth levels, um, are are significant. And it we know with absolute certainty that the, that that's an impediment to entrepreneurial activity in the U.S. Right. Yeah, I, one of the things that is so interesting as we get out to talk about the book is that um, there's this tendency right now in the world, Seth might disagree with me on this, but I think there's a tendency that actually comes from this period of very rapid technological advance we've made. People want to break everything down and categorize and segment everything, which um, means that we're missing a lot of the big picture, right? So our book is very holistic and we talk to people um, and they want to break it down and say, well, this is the one answer or this is the clear cut solution. And we got to take a step back from that, right? Because the truth is much more complicated. Um, these problems are nuanced and it really, you have to look at it and through a wider and more holistic lens if you're really going to make progress. So I find myself not in this interview, but in others, like sort of fighting against that tendency to want to split it, right? To want to divide the problem up. And it's really not dividable. Right. And, you know, uh, you, you talked about people, people of color, women, uh, and, you know, people who have more wealth who are starting new businesses. But, uh, you know, I, I somehow feel that there's a bit of an ageism in, in sometimes tech companies. But when you see a younger pop, a generation, you know, coming up with starting new businesses or are you seeing even people in, into the 40s and 50s, you know, starting uh, starting business and getting help? The fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in the U.S. are people over 55. So there are, and that, and that is something, again, I mean, really everything we wrote about surprised people, which is, I think, why the book is, is catching so much attention right now. Um, but, um, but in particular, I think people don't see that because they, you know, when you see uh, or hear stories of, of uh, tech founders in particular, you think of, you know, the white male hoodie wearing, you know, 20 something, maybe college dropout. And that's just not, that's not true in terms of entrepreneurship writ large. It's also not really true in terms of who's starting technology businesses. The average age of a technology founder is 40. Um, so not, I mean, it's 40 still pretty young, but it's not, you know, it's not, uh, not the 20 something college dropout that many people think that it is. And, and, you know, I think, again, we don't tend to have structures for supporting older entrepreneurs in the same way that we have structure supporting younger entrepreneurs. And I do think that there's a lot of age bias in Silicon Valley. We've got some quotes from various, you know, sort of luminaries in the, in the technology world uh, talking about how, you know, founders over 32, you know, should go look elsewhere. Like if I see someone who's over older than that, I just don't think that they kind of have the chops. You know, I don't know that those particular investors that we quote that their track records would suggest that they really don't invest in in founders that are over 32. But but you know, even that they're willing to go on the public record and talk about that suggests that they're willing to perpetuate a really dangerous myth of who is starting businesses today. Right, and uh, you you know you you talked about uh, founders who are uh, starting businesses like. Uh, you know, saloons and restaurants and all that. Um, what what can be done to to support such entrepreneurs? I understand in in in, 
in the tech world, you have accelerators and funds who and mentors who are trying to help out these founders. But uh, what, what are some of the ways in which uh, you know uh, such such entrepreneurship can be uh, uh, it can be uh, can be given forward to? Yeah, so it's like you hit on exactly one of the things we write about in the book. There's a chapter in our book called "The a Secret of Silicon Valley," which is we think that um, Silicon Valley does do some things really well, and one of them is coming up with this concept for accelerators and incubators. Um, and if we can take that idea and um, spread it to other parts of the economy and support other different kinds of founders, we think that could be incredibly powerful. And I just want to say, you know, that some, at, on one hand, we've, we hit this wall of like disbelief in Silicon Valley and among the VC world and among the tech journalists that I know when we came to them with the conclusions of our book, but one of the other great gifts of Silicon Valley and the tech world is that they kind of let go of stuff pretty fast. Um, so they're like, oh, well, we were wrong. Let's, you know, and now we found a great reception in that world of people who are saying, okay, I've, I looked at the data, you're right. Um, now, what do we do to help the rest of the, of the founders? Um, and that's pretty cool. I mean, I love that. I don't know, if, Seth, if you've been feeling that too, but just the reception we've been getting in the tech world for the idea of broadening the concept of entrepreneurship is heartening. So our hope, my hope particularly is that, you know, people will step forward and figure out how to do this. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash socialpilot to get a 14-day free trial. I think that's right, Elizabeth. And I think it's, you know, I mean, this is in part why you and I decided to write the book, right? Was that we have platforms in and credibility inside that community to be able to say, hey, this thing is going on and it's time to pay attention to it. And I think, you know, I've been really happy with, with how people, how that's resonated with people. And, and, you know, I think one of our, one of our challenges or, or, you know, one of our calls here is to like, now let's, you know, we're getting great reception inside the tech community, inside the business community. Now we got, now we need to expand that. How do we get that to the policy community? How do we get that to the, you know, to Americans writ large? Right. And, and how about the unbundling of the university? Do you think that's, that's going to happen where, you know, students are not supposed to study four years, but maybe, maybe do a course in how to, you know, how to be a great hairdresser or, or something like that, which is, which is useful for, for people who want to start entrepreneurship. Or do you think it's, it's, it's going to be something like what Lambda School is doing? Like it's a, it's a four month course, but it's, uh, it's really revolutionized the, you know, the, the education industry and what, what by why common it is doing. Uh, do you think, uh, you know, such sort of initiatives should also be taken? Oh yeah. I, I have not heard that term before, but I like it. The unbundling of the university. Uh, yeah. Actually, I just um, know a friend of mine who's the economic, he's doing economic development in Kentucky, just took a year-long course from Stanford called Be a Disruptor, like in yeah. her, you know, to her world, right? And I thought, wow, well, that sounds pretty cool. Um, we, I should mention, so yeah, I think like that is a phenomenal idea and a great trend, actually. Um there are probably some counters to that, but I'll just say on the whole, I think that's a great trend. And I should mention here that one of the organizations, and Seth knew of them first, is uh, called E for All that we write about in the book, Entrepreneurship for All. 
um, which is exactly an accelerator for the kinds of founders we're talking about. So that this movement is going on. It's just too small right now. It's too small. And that course, it's probably important to think about like what, who really can reach the communities we're talking about, right? And I'm not sure that a Stanford can really connect very well with the Dominican community in Massachusetts, right? That's kind of another area of conversation, um, but grassroots efforts are probably the most valuable thing that could go on now. Agreed, absolutely. Yeah. Got it. And uh, do you think the government should also step in and you know, encourage um, some sort of initiative? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think we are, I mean, we, you know, we don't generally look to the government for sort of the answers, but they can be part of the answers answer. And uh, we, we talk about a few public-private partnerships in the book, which have, are very successful models where, you know, public money spurs additional private money. I mean, it, it, it's set up to do that. Um, so I think there's some opportunities there. Um, there's definitely an opportunity for the government to think about the role, the role it plays in um, impeding entrepreneurship. You mentioned hairdressers and things like that. The, the number of, of uh, professions that require hyper-local certifications, which really make no sense, right? I mean, you, but if, you know, if, I have a, if I can be a hairdresser in Longmont, Colorado, why can't I be a hairdresser in, you know, in Boise? Uh, I can't right now. I'd have to go through a total, totally separate um, certification process. And I think COVID kind of laid bare uh, that there are some holes like that in our systems that we need to, to think, about, uh, think about differently. Um, so uh, you know, I think there's some things the government could do to back off. We, we talk also a lot about kind of the, what's been the over-regulation of the banking sector which has led to this dangerous consolidation of banks, particularly, particularly smaller banks, community banks. Um, so there's plenty of things the government could do to maybe even get out of the way uh, of, uh, you know, of, of entrepreneurship. Um, but I think one of the things we caution about is that oftentimes when government does get involved um, with what they think of as the innovation economy, they think of it in terms of how do they support venture and the venture model. And, and that's just that's not a great role for government, um, in part because the venture model is not a particularly good good way of promoting broad based economic development. Um, and so, you know, we would we would encourage people to think more broadly about uh, who are policymakers to think more broadly about the 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 impact that government can have and and focus it on not the areas of the innovation economy that are working and getting lots of money, uh, but the areas of the innovation economy that that are being left behind. Right. Uh, yeah, I quickly want to do the top three. What's a favorite business book? Oh, favorite business book. Um, gosh, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, other than the new builders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I particularly love uh, Winning the Losers Game, uh, which is by my friend Charlie Ellis, because the, I think this is all related, right? But building wealth uh, via investments, building wealth via businesses, I just think being secure with the way that you handle money is really important. So that I'll mention that one. I'm a big fan of startup communities. My 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 business partner Brad Fell wrote it. I think it's fantastic. It describes a lot about sort of community based action. Um, so I'd I'd be a, a I'd be loath not to recommend that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes. And uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you started writing the book, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Oh, good question. Seth, do you want to take that? Because I know you need to jump off. 
Yeah, I don't know that there is anything I would have done differently. I mean, the truth is that we um, I'm really happy with the way that the book came out. And and I think the timing turned out to be unbelievable. I mean, it just, you know, thank God that we had already done the research for it and we could write it really quickly. I mean, you know, I suppose if I could have done anything, I would have started a year early because we we compressed what is normally a you know, an 18 month to two year writing timeline, uh, we compressed it into six months and that was just a huge amount of work. Um, but, uh, but other than that, uh, you know, we did that because it was so timely. We knew we needed to get it out. Yeah. And I, I don't really have anything to add to that. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of writing the new builders. It's really one of the best things I've done in my work life up till now. Awesome. And, and just, uh, just the last one, do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom, um. <laughs> I just yeah. So right before this call, I was doing a helpful call with Superhuman, which is an app that Seth yeah. turned on to, which I really love. So. Yeah, I think we, we we had Vivek from Superhuman. That's a that's a great tool. Uh, Seth, any any other tool uh, that you want to? Recommend? Yeah, well, I use Voxer a lot, which is this, this sort of voicemail app. I love it. You can leave asynchronous voicemails, but I just uh, my calendar is booked all day every day. Um, and it's really hard sometimes to, and what I found is that a lot of conversations that people think they need to have, uh, you know, sort of directly, but they can't be done in over email can actually be done in Voxer where you just leave each other these little voice snippets and, and, uh, you can make a lot of progress quickly. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. We'll put, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, uh, it's, it's said, uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about, uh, the new book, the new builders? We have a website, www.thenewbuilders.com. You can buy the book through that website, and there's independent bookstore links where you can buy the book through them, too. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for you know taking our time and speaking to us. Uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with you guys. Thank you. It was really Thank you, Rohit. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.